Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8. This morning's message comes from Luke 8, beginning at verse 19. Before we do look at this, let us pray and ask that God would work mightily through his word this morning. Father, we are dependent creatures, highly dependent. For we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we don't even realize this or understand this so often. And we think that we have, and yet we don't realize that all we have comes from you. Father, we ask this morning as we do open your word that you would be pleased to work through it in our lives. We trust that you will, we expect that you will, and we are anticipating you to work in and through us. Minister grace and peace to us in your word and help us to see, for we ask this in Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The question we have to ask the text this morning is who really is part of Jesus' family? That's kind of what's being brought forward here. And according to Jesus, what does he say? Who's part of God's family? Who's part of his family? He was kind of making a distinction here, right? And he says... My brother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, the question for us this morning exactly is this. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says this here? That my mother and my brothers, those who are part of my family, are those who hear the word of God and do it. What does that mean to be one who hears the word and does it? What Jesus is saying here, obviously, clearly, is that there's a marked difference. He uses this opportunity to create a distinction. There's the natural biological family, his actual mother and brothers that are trying to see him, the natural family. And then Jesus takes this opportunity. He isn't dismissing the family, but at the same time, he's making a distinction, and he's allowing everybody to to hear something that causes, do you think this would cause someone to go, huh? That's what Jesus is brilliant at, getting you to go away, scratch your head, say, what is he talking about? What does he mean here? And I want us to give us a little, just to get a little context in what's going on, because one of the questions I ask when I, when I read this is, why? Why is, is his family coming up to him and asking him this? What, what is it that the mother and the brothers band together, because he also had some sisters, they come and they want to get Jesus for we don't find out here at all. Just all of a sudden, they show up out of nowhere, it seems like. And the only place we can get a little bit of context to what's going on here is Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had just been preaching and ministering in Galilee. And the crowd was so thick and so intense that he had to get in a boat and push off into the sea a little bit and preach. And then the, later that night, he go, that's when he goes up on the mountain and he prays all night long that the Lord would... I know, we don't know exactly what he prays about or says, but we know that after he comes back down, he chooses the 12. So clearly it's in reference to choosing the 12 in some way. And then after this, it says, this is what it says in, in Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Then he went home. 
So then after choosing the twelve, he went home, which was in Nazareth. And a crowd gathered again. So, and this is how big the crowd was. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So just imagine this, a crowd so intense, so thick, so many, that you, you can't probably put your hands up to your mouth to eat. It's like there's just everywhere. You can't grab food. You can't do anything. That's how many people are there. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is incredibly popular. And massive crowds are gathering wherever he goes. And then in verse 20, it goes on to say this, of, Matthew, uh, sorry, of Mark 3. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, just a clarifier here. When they said he's out of his mind, they don't mean Jesus is nuts. He's crazy in that, like, he's literally lost it. He has, uh, he's doing very funny things. This is a, an expression of the day that dis, it didn't just mean that. It could mean that, but it also just means somebody is just, you know, they're, they're not doing what is wise. They're kind of not operating within a good framework. And uh, here, actually, there's this expression is actually clarified by Gill's expository commentary. When he says this, he talks about how this phrase is used and the different ways it's used. The kinsmen and friends of Christ, having heard of the situation that he was in, said to one another something like this, along these lines. He is in a transport in excess of mind. His zeal carries him beyond due bounds. He has constantly forgotten himself. He is unmindful of himself, takes no care of his health. He will certainly greatly impair it. If he goes on at this rate, praying all night and preaching all day without taking any rest of food, he's in trouble. Therefore, they, Jesus' family, came out to him in order to dissuade him from such excessive labors and engage him to go with him where he might have rest and refreshment and be composed and retire. So that's a lot to say. That's basically what's coming across with this idea he's out of his mind. They, they mean he really does need to understand that what he's doing is going to hurt him because he, this is way out of bounds. And then just in Mark chapter 3, so that gives a little context. He jumps down in verse 31 and says this. So from that picture, then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent and called for him. The exact same expression that we have here in Luke chapter 8. And Jesus finds out as he hears this, and he takes the opportunity to state who his really fa- real family is. Now, clearly, this is the, both, this is the same incident, incident in both cases. Both places, both Mark 3 and Luke 8, this story is the same. However, in, in Mark, this is placed according to chronology, what's happening. In Luke, it isn't. If you'll notice, he's, he, it, it seems a little bit more random in Luke chapter 8, where it's just plugged in there. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching on the parable of the sower. He does this other teaching. And then all of a sudden, the mothers and the brothers show up, and we don't know the context. And it's because Luke has a, a different pr- plan and purpose with his gospel than Mark does. Mark is much more chronological. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And Luke has a, a broader purpose of just revealing that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so therefore you, ha- you have some differences like that because the purpose is different. But the most important thing here to note is the situation in this context that Jesus is defining who indeed is his family. Who belongs to Jesus and his family? 
But the question is, is that when Jesus says, those who hear the word of God and do it, what does he mean by that when he says that? Is Jesus saying that those who obey the law are his family? If so, isn't that somewhat, isn't Jesus talking about those who hear the word of God, who will hear God's word and then obey it? Isn't he, isn't he somehow talking about somewhat of a, a, a works-based salvation, obeying God's word? And do it, hear it, and obey it, and do it. It somewhat, doesn't that also in your mind think, well, that sounds a little different than the gospel presentation we hear. That's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? It isn't too difficult to take Jesus' words. If you want to take Jesus in the gospel, you can take his words and make him sound like he is self, uh, preaching a salvation by law keeping. Because his statements sometimes seem to imply this. For example, in Matthew 7:21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only though the one who does, only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Or as he puts it in Matthew 7:24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, obeys them, is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. In John 13, 17, Jesus says, Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Obedience, 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 all the way through. And it's all over the place Jesus will talk like this. But probably the clearest example of Jesus using words that sound a whole lot like us obeying and doing is what determines our uh, being part of the family in the kingdom of heaven is Matthew 19, 17 through 22. When Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, here's how it's recorded. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Oh, no, no, it's not about good deeds. It has nothing to do with that. Is that what he says? No. Jesus is very shrewd. He gets what's going on. He knows exactly what to say because he is all wise. Why do you ask me what is good? Another translation says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, this is what Jesus says, if you would enter life, listen to this, keep the commandments. Salvation, eternal life, by law keeping. That's basically what he says. If you just want to, that's what he says, keep the commandments, right? He said to him, which ones? So the, the, the young man says, okay, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus knew exactly where to hit him, because if, this, if, if him putting the law before him wasn't enough to, for the young man to put his tail between the legs and walk away, Jesus, okay, let's crank it up the dial just a little bit, because I know how to get you. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus doesn't go from this and then clearly explain the gospel and how it works. His disciples hear this, and they're, they're scratching their heads going, Wow! Okay, Jesus, come here. Who then can be saved? 
Because as I've said plenty of times before, in that culture, in that setting, the wealthy and the rich, you go read Proverbs, it looks like those who obey God, those who follow God, those who are blessed by God, those who have God's blessing all over them, are those who are wealthy. Now, the the disciples are like, well, if the rich can't be saved, then who can? And then Jesus, he says, okay, here's my opportunity. I'm going to clarify it perfectly for you. No. He throws in another enigma. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Because he just finished saying in this context, it's easier for uh, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're confused. It's like, what's he talking about? And here's the thing. As I said last week, so much of what Jesus said and did was hidden from the eyes of even his apostles at this time. It was like shrouded mystery. A lot of head scratching. What's he talking about? Like, where's he going with this? And Jesus has, he feels no obligation to state what why he's speaking the way he is. But now, let's move into post-death, resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Spirit. And watch the clarity difference, and watch what happens here. Think of, watch how Paul speaks, and how clearly he communicates how it is one was saved, how it is one was justified, how it is one was made righteous, how it is that one could stand before God. And listen to the difference in the clarity. Romans 2, Paul's revealing how it is that one would be justified by the law. He says this in Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, you can know the law, you can have it proclaimed to you, you can have a personal copy of it under your pillow, you could have it in your mouth. You could, you could hear it all the time. But unless you obey it perfectly, you will not be justified before God. And, to, and just to clarify what Paul is doing here and how he's arguing and reasoning and getting to this point that he does, in chapter 2, verses 17 to, through 23, he says to the Jews who are finding their boast, they're boasting in the fact that they have the law. They find them, they're very proud about the fact that they have the law. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and how his will, and no, sorry, know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, Do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who say that one must not, uh, sorry, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. These Jews, he is speaking of, didn't get it. They were boasting in the very thing that was condemning them. Because in this grand summary, Paul draws us all to conclusion in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. And he states this. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. You see its purpose? 
that every mouth may be stopped in the sense that there's nothing you can say about yourself because the law is there condemning you. And all the world, and the purpose here, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, the conclusion, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then he goes on to tell the good news of the righteousness of God that is in Christ Jesus. A righteousness that's revealed apart from the law through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what he says in Romans 3, 19 and following. So, if Jesus is saying that those who obey God's word are a part of his family, as if he's saying that, it seems to contradict what, what Paul is saying here. But Jesus isn't. It's true. If you do, you are. Just like Paul said, hey, if you keep it all, high fivers, congratulations, you're in, you're justified. Good job. The problem is, no one does. Big problem. So Jesus' statement is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So the question I have now is, why is Jesus using these particular words? Why is he stating it this way? I believe it is to accomplish a softening and humbling in Israel. Jesus is taking the law and with it exposing the people of the law. Just remember now Paul in chapter 2, how these, what's their boast? We're a people of the law. We're a people of God. We're the people, we, you know, they're, they're, they just thought that because we're the favored in the world, God has spoken to us. God has given us his oracles. God has given us his law. And this, simply by possession of it, we're, they're like, look, look at us. We're cool. We're, we're good with God. And they were very self-righteous and arrogant as a lot, as a whole of them. They really did think that they were the people of God because of possession of the law, because of their connection to God and God's favor upon them. Jesus, as you'll see, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is condemning the whole lot of them. He wants them to see and get and understand that they are not keepers of the law. They are complete and utter lawbreakers. For example, just some quick tidbits out of the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't believe that the poor in spirit would inherit the kingdom of God. They didn't believe that the meek would inherit the earth. And not only that, they didn't think or believe that hatred in the heart made them guilty of murder. No way. They didn't believe that lusting after your neighbor's spouse in your heart made them guilty of adultery. They didn't think that swearing by the altar or heaven made them guilty of swearing falsely. They didn't think that treating others how they were being treated made them guilty of breaking the law of love. They believed that it was, they said, hey, the law says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If someone slaps me, I slap them right back. Justice. If someone steals from me, I take from them. Justice. They had a perverted view of the law. Israel was so full of pride about its law and her law keeping that she needed a heavy dose of some true law to wake her up. 
This is why so much of Jesus' ministry is awakening Israel to the true meaning of the law. A raising of the standard, uh, helping you to truly understand. So you think you're pretty good, huh? Okay. Let's see how good you really are. And a great, I just love that example of the rich young ruler. Because, look, Jesus doesn't tell him, like, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in me alone. It's, like, it's so simple, no. He's like, no, let's just really get this out there. Tell you, you have to understand the point and purpose of the law. And you, you should look at it and you should go, oh, no. Oh, no. Israel receives tough words. Yet, sinners and outcasts in Israel who humble themselves and look to Jesus for grace, what do they find? They're the only ones that you look in the gospel who Jesus says to them, your sins are forgiven you. Who are the people? You'll look at, who does he say this to? Prostitutes. Sinners, the outcast, the one who Israel is despising, and they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he'll say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven you. That must be just like, what? And then the Pharisees are like, who is this who forgives sins? Who thinks that he can just forgive people's sins? Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus does give, he gives tidbits throughout. He doesn't say a lot, but he'll say, make, he'll say things that are just very pointed. He says, I did not come for the righteous but for the unrighteous. What? What? It's only only the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying? That's what Jesus loved to do. He's throwing it out, out there, and he's saying things, but Israel's still scratching their heads. So the real question is then, if we can't become part of Jesus' family... By obeying the law, he who, who keeps the law, he who, he who hears the word of God and obeys it, how then does this happen? What role now does faith play in becoming part of the family of Jesus? How, how does this work? Because Jesus doesn't mention it here. But it is everything. It's the central point. Because if we can't get into the family of God through our obedience through the law, then how can we get in? That's the question. And the answer to that is, according to Scripture, through faith in Jesus Christ. Because as the Word teaches us, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. It also says in the very beginning that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Believing God's promise. Again, in Romans chapter 3, 21 and following, as I'd mentioned, it declares that here is now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's been manifested to us. We've realized it. We've seen it. We now understand it and get it. Although it says, he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what role does faith play in becoming a part of the family of Jesus? 
It's the central role. There's no other way. So what we really have to understand then is what is faith? Faith is the central thing, the necessary thing. Because if we don't understand biblical faith properly, it can be easy to deceive ourselves and think that we believe and yet we don't believe. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, here's the best definition of faith you could ever have. The Bible says, right, plain and simple, here is faith. This is what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. This is the ESV version and the best by far I've ever seen it put. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's being absolutely convinced of what God says about himself, yourself, and Jesus. It's being convinced and certain of what you have, of God, what God has promised to you. So if you ask a person with faith, if they are righteous and holy in God's sight, they would believe in their hearts that they were. They would say yes. But, let me be quick to add, I'm not holy and righteous. Well, what are you talking about? Well, in and of myself, I'm not holy and righteous. I'm unrighteous. But by faith in Jesus Christ, I receive his righteousness. He gives it to me. His work is sufficient for me. What he did is is good enough for me. That's why I'm righteous and holy. That's why I'm a part of the family of God. That's why I belong to him. That's why I belong to God. Because of what he's done for me. Faith isn't crossing your fingers like this and say, are you righteous before God? Are you part of his family? I sure hope so. (laughs) I'm hoping it works out. (laughs) Faith is the certainty of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. All you have is a promise before you. But here's the other thing. Faith isn't something that's just 100% rock solid, top to bottom, jumping around confident faith. I have faith. Boom. All things settled. Never shrinking back. Never wavering. It's just kaboom. There it is. That's not faith. Because in faith in the Bible, Jesus often talks about it in, in degrees. We know that those who have great faith, Paul talks about you could have such great faith that you could move mountains, he says, but have not love, it's useless, right? And Jesus says, you, you of little faith. He Doesn't he say that to his disciples quite often? You of little faith, which means there must be those of great faith. In fact, there was. Remember the centurion that Jesus says, I have, never, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. This guy has large faith. And Jesus was... Constantly discussing their faith, the disciples' faith, to them in matter of degrees, often talking about how little it was. So faith isn't something that's like dialed on 10. It it wavers at times. We are people where our faith is stronger at times and is weaker at times. And here's the thing that happens. Our eyes see what is in front of us. And what we see, if what we see contradicts what God has promised, we are all of a sudden in a dilemma. 
Because at that point, our faith is tested. When what we see contradicts what God has promised. If we start staring at the greatness of the situation or a problem before our eyes in front of us, and we get our eyes off the greatness of God and his promises before us, we start to sink. Just like Peter walking on the water with Jesus. When he was fixated on Jesus and his power and his greatness, and he's like, wow, can I do that? And Jesus says, come on. And he, he's going, fixed his eyes, fixed on Jesus, and guess what he's doing? He's doing the impossible. You cannot walk on water, right? <laughs> That's an impossibility. My eyes see an impossibility, but Jesus says, come on, come to me. His promise defies what my eyes see. And, Jesus, and, and Peter's doing fine at first, isn't he? And then you've got to think, he's like, holy. Do you, look around for a moment. This is water. You can't walk on water. <laughs> this just doesn't happen. And you could, you could almost see it. There he was, starting off, fixated on Jesus, confident, his faith was strong, and he's doing the impossible. Then all of a sudden, he stops looking at Jesus and thinks, what was I, I thinking? What am I doing? This is crazy. And he starts to sink. And as he starts to sink, he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus saves him and delivers him once again. And you know... I just think it's absolutely amazing. Peter's bold and he's up front. His faith was, you know, it was strong and then weak. And, and, and it, most of us, we would have been like the, the 11 other disciples. We're staying here, right here. Peter's the one who actually took step and got out there and started moving. You have to commend him for it. Because what he did is he stepped into the absolute impossibility of walking on water and he believed God for it. Because Jesus told them to come. So there's Jesus' word, and his word defied possibility. So think back to the definition now, when you're Peter. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It defies your eyes. And faith doesn't gain its confidence from our circumstances or the rationality of the situation or because you can do the math. It gains its confidence in the God who made the promise. And we know and are convinced that all things are possible with God. And did you hear me? All things, even walking on water. There's nothing that's beyond him. Nothing too far for him. Nothing that he can't do. Nothing is impossible for him. If you need food and you're in a desert, he can rain it down from heaven. If you need water and you're in a desert, he can make it come out of a rock. The two things that are absolutely defy possibility. And this is the God we serve, the God who is with you now. And as we fix our eyes on him, fix our eyes on Jesus, and we, and, and we get focused on his power, on his greatness, on who he is, and on him, what happens to our faith? It starts to embolden and strengthen. 
We read stories about Daniel and Shadrach, Mesh- Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego. And we, and we look at the stories of, of the apostles, and we see people who trusted God and what they did. And, and we see that, you know what? Truly, all things are possible with God. Truly, our God is above all things. Truly, our God is over all things. He controls all things. He determines all things, decrees all things. He is a strong and a powerful God. What happens to your faith when you fix your eyes on him? It grows. But I tell you what, what happens to your faith when you fix your eyes on the impossible situation you're in? What happens when you start trying to do the math? What happens when you're trying to figure it out? Well, this doesn't work out. I look at this and there's just no way. No way. I don't have enough time to get this completed to fulfill what is necessary. You're right. You don't. You know, you're in a situation, and I don't know where you're in your life, and you'll bet you'll find yourself, if you find yourself, have you ever found yourself in an impossible scenario? That's where God loves to put his people. Because it just, and have you found yourself trying to do the math? Trying to make it all work out? Trying to make it reason out? Because if you're at all like me, I've got to figure it out. And if I could figure it out, then I can trust God. Because, okay, God, I, uh, I get what you're doing. I can see how this all works. I can, yeah, okay, now you've got my full confidence. Trust. It's, faith, faith is the insurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You don't see it, and a lot of times what you're hoping for and what, you're, and what you don't see are promises that all you have are, is God's word. That's it. And any who've ever clung to him and trusted him have never been disappointed. All they have are great stories to tell of being his children. Faith is what allow martyrs to be burned to death for Jesus. They're willing to face the flames. And you know what? Flames normally hurt and burn. So you're doing the math. You're about to face the flames. Uh Uh-uh. No thanks. I don't want any part of that. Why do you want no part of that? I know what flames do. You can only walk into them and stay faithful to them and walk through that by faith in a God who's Lord over the flames. He is with me. He is sovereign over it. And he will give me the grace, whatever I need, whatever it is. We don't know how because if you could all... Again... Oh, what's going to happen is I'll get in there and it'll be just fine and everything's, you know, you figure out how he's going to work through it. Oh, yeah, now I can trust him because I can figure it all out. No, so often the martyrs, they go to the flames. They don't know. They don't know how. They just know that he will. And so they go to the flames believing and trusting in God. They said, you are with me and you'll never forsake me or depart from me. You are actually going to use this. You'll be with me in this. You will give me the grace and the strength. You will help me. And I don't know how, but you will. You have to have that kind of confidence or you'd say, forget it. Uh, What do I have to do? I'm out of here. Um, I'll deny whatever because the flames are just too hot. That's faith like this, faith that walks and lives and trusts God in the midst of the impossible. This is the faith that is the manifestation, the evidence that one belongs to Jesus. 
They trust in God for all things. They trust in Jesus to save them. They trust that God will... Because why? Because he promised. He said, look what he did in Jesus. I trust Jesus. I trust him because he's faithful. I trust him because of what he's done for me. This is the faith that pleases God. This is the faith that unites you to Christ Jesus. This is the faith that, that, that identifies you as one belonging to him. So let me ask you a question, getting back as the text states. If you belong to the family of Jesus, will it be because of your obedience to his word? You can only say yes if you keep that perfectly. No, but it'll be because of Jesus' obedience to God's word. It will be because... Jesus has made me fully righteous and holy in God's sight. Jesus has given me the gift of righteousness. I belong to Jesus. I'm a part of the family of Jesus. Why? Because I put my trust and confidence in the work of Jesus. That makes God smile. You get it. Blessed be your name. God has smiled upon you if you believe that. Amen. Father, we are so thankful and grateful for Jesus because we have no other hope besides him. We don't have a righteousness in our own. We are, we are lawbreakers. We have gone contrary to your law, against it in so many ways. And Father, we are unrighteous apart from Jesus, but we are so thankful that you give us the righteousness of Christ by believing, by looking to Jesus and to what he's done, and believing it was for us. Father, you who are able to do abundantly more than where we ever ask for. Grant us faith to believe that we would lay hold of what it is you promised us in Christ Jesus. Amen. In response to God's word, please rise and sing his praises.